0: Like you ask, to ask you to turn in your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 5. And the book of Hebrews is written to Hebrews, it's written to Jews. And so to understand the book of Hebrews, it's important that we refresh our memories as to the contents of the Old Testament. In fact, it would be good for you to go back and read the book of Leviticus to help you understand the intricacies of the book of Hebrews, it helps us to understand where a Jew was coming from, the kind of Jew that the writer is writing to. You see, to the Jewish mind, God was far away. To the Jewish mind, God was separate from man. That really began back in Genesis chapter 3 when God drove Adam and Eve out of the garden. It's seen in the wilderness when they came to Mount Sinai, and God came down on the mountain, and there was thunder and lightning and a thick cloud, and the mountain shook, and there was fire, and there was smoke, and they were told, if anyone touches the mountain, you will die. Now that's not the kind of God you would want to climb in His lap. God was seen as being in the holy of holy places, and guarding the holy of holy places was a veil that was saying, keep out. And if anybody went beyond that veil, they immediately died and so God was seen as distant God was seen as separate from man you say well how did the Jew get to God well the way he got to God was through a priest the distinction is this a prophet represented God before man a priest represented man before God and ultimately he needed a high priest It was the high priest who actually went in one time a year into the holy of holy places on the day of atonement. And he was representing the people. In fact, the Bible tells us that the names of the children of Israel were written on his shoulder and on his breastplate. He was Israel's representative going into the presence of God. And since the theme of the book of Hebrews is that Jesus Christ is superior to everyone and everything in the old economy, and that the new covenant is greater than the old covenant, the question that would come to the Jewish mind at this point would be, if the new covenant is better than the old covenant, then where is our high priest? I mean, we've got to have a high priest. And the answer is found at the end of chapter 4 in verse 14 where it says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Our great high priest is Jesus. And because of that, verse 16 says, We can now draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. God is no longer far away. God is no longer saying stay away because Jesus is our high priest and because His sacrifice paid for our sins forever, God is saying come. And that's the message God was communicating when Jesus died on the cross and that veil blocking the holy of holy places that said stay away was torn from the top to the bottom. God was saying the way into my presence is now open. So in the New Covenant, Jesus is our high priest. Now, Rome just recognized a new pope. And one of his titles is Pontifex Maximus. That phrase means the great high priest. Now, is the pope the great high priest? Does chapter 4 and verse 14 say, since we have a great high priest who lives in Rome? No. In fact, I would suggest to you that giving that title to another is blasphemous. Jesus is the great high priest and there is no other high priest. And beginning here in chapter 5 and running all the way into chapter 10, The writer establishes and supports this idea of Christ being our high priest. And he begins with the qualifications. In chapter 5 here, verses 1-4, to he gives us the qualifications for a high priest. And then in verses 5-9, to he shows us how Jesus perfectly fulfills each one of those qualifications. Now, I can pick out four qualifications. I've listed them in your bulletin. The first is, he has to be set apart by God. Look at verse 1. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. Now notice the words, the high priest was taken and appointed. You say, well, who took him and appointed him? Well, we see the answer clearly in verse 4. And no one takes the honor to himself but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. God calls him and takes him and appoints him as a high priest. You see, a man didn't decide to run for the office of high priest. He had to be chosen by God. And the example He gives here is Aaron. And if you go back to the life of Aaron in Exodus 28.1, you'll find that God chose Aaron to be His high priest. And throughout the Old Testament, whenever anybody tried to function in the office of a priest without being called by God, they got into big trouble. In fact, in 1 Samuel chapter 13, King Saul took it upon himself to offer sacrifices rather than to wait for Samuel And the result of that was that Saul's kingdom was taken away from him and given to David. We read about King Uzziah in 2 Chronicles 26. It says he went into the temple and started burning incense. And the priest said to him, you're not a priest, you better get out of here. And he didn't leave. And the result was that leprosy broke out on his forehead. You see, the high priest had to be called by God. God. He wasn't elected by men. He didn't promote himself. God made him a high priest. In fact, in Numbers chapters 16 and 17, Aaron's authority is questioned by Korah and Dathan and Abiram and others. And they said, Well, you, you know, we're all holy. We're all the same. Who, Who elevated you to this special office? And you know how God showed that Aaron was his man? Well, number one, he opened the earth and swallowed the other guys, so that kind of made it pretty clear. But the but the real way he confirmed it was he caused Aaron's rod to bud and blossom and bear almonds. That's an interesting way to show he's God's man. But you know what? I think any time anyone is called by God to a certain ministry, the way God confirms that that individual is called is by bearing supernatural fruit. The first qualification for a high priest was he was set apart by God. Second qualification, he had to be selected from among men. Notice that phrase in verse 1. Taken from among men. You see, he had to partake of the nature of the persons that he represented. The high priest, in order to go before God on behalf of men, had to be a man himself. God didn't choose an angel. God didn't choose some other being. He chose a man. That's the second qualification. Third qualification, he had to be sympathetic with people. Notice verse 2. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided, since he himself also is beset with weakness. He can deal gently. That means he is compassionate an effective mediator truly understands the condition of those that he represents. And the Jewish high priest could understand the problem of sinners because in Leviticus 16:6 6, it says before he could go into the holy of holy places to atone for the people he had to offer a sacrifice for his own sins. He could relate to the people because as it says here he was beset with weakness. He understood their sorrow. He understood their pain. He understood their weakness because He experienced it Himself. Let me ask you a question. Who is the ignorant and misguided? Well, that's all people. The Bible says in Romans 3.11, there is none who understands. The Bible says in Isaiah 53.6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned... Every one to his own way. We are all ignorant and misguided and in need of a compassionate high priest. And then the fourth qualifications is he had to be sacrificing for sins. Notice verse three. And because of it he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins, as for the people, so also for himself. The high priest offered sacrifices. For sins. That was his main job. He represented people by offering animal sacrifices on the altar to God. And I want you to notice two things. First of all, sacrifices is plural, it is sacrifices plural for sin. It was a daily process. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 1 refers to this and says, The sacrifices which they offer continually. They did it all the time. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 11 says, And every priest stands daily, ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. They are continually standing, offering sacrifices over and over again. That's why there were no seats in the tabernacle, because their work was never done. Their sacrifices were plural. And then, secondly, I want you to notice that the Old Testament high priest had the same problem the people did. He was a sinner too. And so, he didn't just offer sacrifices for the people, he had to offer sacrifices for himself. In fact, later in Hebrews, in chapter 9 and verse 7, it reads this But into the second, that is, the Holy of Holies, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed. In ignorance. So what were the qualifications for a high priest? He had to be set apart by God, selected from among men, sympathetic with people, and sacrificing for sins. Now let's see how Jesus fulfills perfectly those qualifications. First of all, was Jesus set apart by God? Look at verse 5. So also Christ did not glorify Himself so as to become a high priest. What's that mean? Christ didn't make Himself a high priest. How did He become one? Look at the rest of verse 5. But He who said to Him, Thou art My Son, today I have begotten Thee. Now that's a quote from Psalm 2-7. And who is speaking? God the Father. Who is He speaking to? The Son, Jesus And then notice verse 6, just as he says also in another passage, Thou art a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now that's Psalm 110 verse 4. What he's saying is, the same one who said, You are my son in Psalm 2, said you are a priest in Psalm 110. That's the calling of God. And so the first qualification is the high priest was set apart by God. He was called by God. And here we see that Jesus was called by God. You say, well, who is this Melchizedek? Well, we're going to get to that in chapter 7. Hold on to your question. And we'll have it answered in detail. Secondly, was Jesus selected from among men? Look at verse 7. In the days of His flesh. Stop right there. What does that mean? In the days of His flesh. It means He was a man. Jesus was fully God and He was fully man. And so He meets the qualifications of a high priest. He was a man. And I love the way it says this. In the days of His flesh. That indicates to me that He had days before the days of flesh and days after the days of flesh which tells me His time here on earth was just an interlude. He existed before and He exists after. And so Jesus was set apart by God. He was selected from among men. Thirdly, He was sympathetic with people. Notice verse 7. In the days of His flesh, when He offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to him who was able to save him from death and who was heard because of his piety. And what's that telling us? Well, it's telling us that he went through it. Prayers, supplications, crying, tears. He can be a sympathetic high priest because he spent the days of his flesh feeling what we feel. Jesus Christ, our high priest, is no stoic. Jesus Christ, our high priest, is not unmoved by the fearful experiences that we pass through. He feels compassion for you and me because He has been here. And what particular incident in the life of Jesus does this verse focus on? Well, if you look carefully, you'll see that He's focusing on that time in the Garden of Gethsemane. That time when Jesus went into the garden the the night before the cross and He began to feel the crush of sin upon Him. He began to feel Satan bruising Him and it hurt. He looked ahead to the cross and He sensed the price that was going to have to be paid to take our sins away. And Jesus in that garden was overwhelmed by the horror and the anguish of God's wrath against sin. And this verse tells us Jesus cried and shed tears. Now, I find it interesting. You won't find that in the Gospel accounts. We're given an insight in here into something Jesus did while He was in the garden that we don't know about in the Gospels. It says He had loud crying. Now, that's an interesting word. It's not, it, it, it's not a word that, that, that means a cry that someone utters because they want to it's a word that indicates a crying that is wrung out of an individual by the anguish that they feel and that's why it also tells us in the gospel of Luke that as Jesus anguish was so great and his prayer was so intense that he sweat as it were great drops of blood falling down on the ground and what did he pray in the garden you remember? Jesus' prayer was, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but thine be done. Looking ahead to the cross and feeling the pain, not just the physical pain, but the spiritual pain, he said, if there's any way I can get around this and still do your will, then take it away. But if not, I'll take it. If there's no other way, then I will drink that cup to the bottom. And so this verse describes Jesus in his humanity crying in the shadow of the cross. And this verse also tells us, at the end of verse 7, that God was able to save him from death. In fact, Matthew chapter 26 and verse 53 tells us that God would have saved him. Jesus said, I could ask my Father, and He would give me 12 legions. A legion was 6,000 troops. I could ask my Father, and He would give me 72,000 angels. So God the Father was able and willing to save him, but that wasn't Jesus' prayer. Because Jesus' ultimate prayer was answered. He prayed, your will be done. And that's what it means at the end of verse 7 when it says, he was heard because of his piety. Piety is really a bad translation. That's That's a word that means he was heard because literally of his fear. And the word fear here is not the Greek word phobia. It's a word that means to have awe and respect and submission. And that's what he had before the Father in the garden. And then notice verse 8. It says, Although He was a son, He learned obedience from the things which He suffered. Now when it says He learned obedience, that doesn't mean that He was formally disobedient. Jesus never sinned. He was always obedient, but only in the days of His flesh did He experience costly obedience. Only in the days of His flesh did He have this kind of obedience through suffering. And that is the ultimate proof of obedience. Obedience is revealed in situations where, where it's not pleasant. When, when my children were little, if I came up to you and said, I have obedient kids. Let me prove it to you. Kids, eat this ice cream you would say, well, Dan, that's not really the test of obedience. The test of obedience is, kids, clean your room. Well, see, God the Father didn't say, Jesus, eat this ice cream. He said, Jesus, go to the cross. Now, I don't think there are many parents here who teach your children by letting them suffer. In fact, you usually do the opposite, don't you? You say, don't do that or you'll get hurt. And they never learn. Don't touch the stove, it'll burn you. Don't touch the stove, it'll burn you. Don't, don't. Oh! Well, now you know. You see, we learn when we suffer. But you would never allow your child to suffer to teach them. But that's what God did. God didn't say, don't go near the cross, it might hurt you. God said, go to the cross. And this verse says, although he was a son, he learned by suffering. And sympathy comes through experience. I've had two kidney stones. If you come to me and say you got a kidney stone, I am sympathetic with you. I have totaled the car and survived. If you go through that experience, I am sympathetic. I understand that experience. We understand things. We are sympathetic because we experience things. And Jesus was obedient all the way to death. He suffered everything that you will possibly suffer. And so he is qualified to be a sympathetic high priest. And then notice verse 9. It says, And having been made perfect. Now, that doesn't mean Jesus was previously imperfect. This word perfect is also the word that means complete. But he's not talking here about Jesus' character. What he's saying is, He became our perfect and complete High Priest. And how did He become our perfect High Priest? Well, that's the fourth qualification. He sacrificed for our sins. Notice the rest of verse 9. And having been made perfect, He became to all those who obey Him the source of eternal salvation. That word source means the originator or the cause. How did He become the cause? How did He become the source of eternal salvation? Well, the answer is that He offered one sacrifice for sins for all time. And that sacrifice was Himself. You see, the unique thing about Jesus is that He is not only our High Priest, He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And the priests in the Old Testament offered sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice that could never take away sins. In contrast to the temporary nature of their sacrifices, Jesus offered one sacrifice which brought eternal salvation and He sat down. Jesus is our perfect high priest. He was called by God. He was a man like us. He is sympathetic to our needs and He offered Himself as a sacrifice for sins, providing us with eternal salvation. Now this is an interesting passage because there are no exhortations in this passage. There are no direct applications in this passage, but let me close by pointing out four applications that I see just below the surface of this passage. Application number one. God's love for us does not preclude His taking us through great trials. God the Father loved the Son, and yet He sent Him to the cross. And He loves you and me And yet He brings us to glory through many sufferings. John Piper in his book, Don't Waste Your Life, makes this observation. No one ever said that they learned their deepest lessons of life or had their sweetest encounters with God on the sunny days. People go deep with God when the drought comes. C.H. McIntosh offers this wise advice Never interpret God's love by your circumstances, but always interpret your circumstances by God's love. Application number one God's love for us does not preclude His taking us through great trials. Second application Feeling deep emotions during trials is not wrong. Please understand this. Some people have the idea that as a Christian, I should never cry, never show any emotion, just be a stoic, have the faith to never show emotions. That's wrong. It's not wrong to experience loud crying and tears in the face of loss or pain. Jesus did. But having said that, let me say this. It is wrong to let those emotions dictate your decisions because what was jesus doing in the midst of those strong emotions was he sitting around saying woe is me no he was praying jesus was experiencing that pain he was experiencing that fear he was experiencing all those emotions you feel and yet what was he doing he was praying and his emotions did not dictate his decision his submission to the will of god did Third application. God sometimes answers our prayers in ways that seem contradictory to our request. You know, many today teach that prayer is simply a matter of naming it and claiming it. You know, you you name what you want from God and you can claim it if you have enough faith. And if you don't get what you're asking for, then the problem is you don't have enough faith. Well, it seems to me that Jesus didn't understand this principle. Because Jesus prayed, if you're willing, I'd like to bypass the cross because it's making me cry. I'd like to bypass the cross because it's making my soul grieve. I'd like to bypass the cross because it's making me sweat blood. And how did the Father answer that prayer? by taking Him through the cross, into the grave, out the other side through resurrection, and up in ascension into glory. God may not answer your prayer requests exactly the way you pray them. And that's a good thing. Because Romans chapter 8 and verse 26 says, we do not know how to pray as we should. Even when I'm praying for something that isn't best, God answers my prayers in the best way. Let me give you a fourth and final application. Everybody doesn't receive the eternal salvation that Jesus provides. You say, well, who gets this eternal salvation? Well, look at verse 9. It says it's for all those who obey him you say well does that mean i have to do a lot of things does that mean i have to keep the ten commandments no well it says i have to obey him what does that mean well you know paul gives us some insight in the book of romans because he says this in romans 1 5 he talks about the obedience of faith in romans chapter 2 and verse 8 he talks about obeying the truth In Romans 10.16, he talks about obeying the Gospel. You see, the obedience he's talking about here is not cranking out a set of rules. God said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And when you obey by believing, you have obeyed in faith. That's why Romans 4.5 says, but to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. In John chapter 6 and verse 28, Jesus was asked a question What shall we do that we may work the works of God? And Jesus said, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. In John chapter 3 and verse 36, Jesus said, He who believes on the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. There are your two options. Believe on him or do not obey him. You see, to not believe is to not obey. And so as we close our service today, let me ask you a question. Have you obeyed him? Have you obeyed the gospel do you have the eternal salvation that Jesus provided it can be yours today because Jesus our great high priest did all the work on the cross he said it is finished and he is sitting down today because the work is all done and he is calling you in Hebrews four sixteen to draw near to the throne of grace won't you do that today I'm going to have the praise team come back. We're going to close with a chorus. I'm going to ask you to stand as we sing together. And if God is challenging your heart today, I'm going to ask you to come if you'd like someone to pray with you to explain more clearly how you can come to put your faith in Jesus Christ today. There are others here who want to join this fellowship. You come as we sing together. Let's make this song our prayer to the Lord as we close our service today. I'd like you'd ask to ask you to be seated for just a moment, and uh I'd like to introduce if we can get some lights There we go, take for granted some things, don't we? I'd ask you all to stand up if you would and face the congregation I'd like to introduce to you this is James and Francine Humphreys and they're here with their daughters Nicole and Jessica and they are here to join our fellowship today and so I would ask Dave if you would to take the Humphreys out to the lobby and after we close in prayer I'll give you an opportunity to meet them if you haven't and encourage them in this decision let's pray together father thank you for your word today we thank you for this passage that reminds us of the fact that without the Lord Jesus we are set apart, we are alienated from You. And yet He, being called by You, became a man. And not only died in our place, but became our high priest to represent us before You. And Father, we thank You that He is a sympathetic high priest. He understands our needs. He understands our hurts. He understands our frustrations and problems, and He has the answer to them all. And Lord, I thank You that not only does He meet those temporal needs, but He has provided us with eternal salvation. And Father, I just pray that those of us who have put our faith in Him might today really rejoice in the salvation that He has provided. And I pray for those who have not yet come to Him in simple childlike faith, that they might come even today and experience the joy of salvation. We pray in Jesus' worthy name. Amen.